business, the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Okay, season five of the Bartholomew Town Podcast is here. Here we go. Great to be back with everybody. I missed all of you. It's been uh, it's been kind of a long month away from all this business and a, a nice respite, kind of a lot of things going on behind the scene. I'll be sharing more of that as season five progresses, but certainly over the past weekend and really since Congressman Langevin announced that he will not be seeking re-election, things have been nuts in Rhode Island politics. I mean, I don't know if you've been paying attention first with, you know, the rumor mill that that Joe Shikarchi, the Speaker of the House, was going to run for the seat being vacated by Congressman Langevin. That was floating around. He certainly was the favorite, if you will. And then last week, he decided not to do so. So that opened up the floodgates for just about everybody and anybody who ever wanted to become a congressperson to say, okay, this is my shot. And over this past weekend, there was all this jostling and rumors, you know, is Seth Magaziner or Helena Folks or Nellie Gorbea, are they going to shift away from their current track, which is being in the race for governor and pivoting to the congressional district two race? You know what I mean? All of them have said they're not leaving the governor's race. They're going to run for governor. Da, 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 da. We're also hearing rumors that soon to be departed, outgoing, if you will, Department of Health Director, Dr. Alexander Scott is also mauling a run. And there's a million other people who have been saying, oh, I might do it, I'm, I'm, I'm considering it. It's, it's actually gotten pretty silly. But a name that jumped out, and in fact is the very first person to throw their name in the ring as a confirmed entrant into the race, is the Refugee Dream Center's Omar Ba. And I think that this is just, regardless of the outcome, just having Omar in this race really changes the dynamics. It really adds a perspective that almost nobody else um, that has either hinted at or is going to announce can possibly bring. And again, it just kind of shakes things up. I think that's what the core of this race needs to be, right? Let's shake things up. Why not? Let's let's rethink, reimagine what the congressperson from Rhode Island or what the two congresspeople from Rhode Island, at least the new one anyway, what that is, what that looks like, what that pipeline is like, what that feels like. And I think looking outside of the political class is something that is absolutely critical to this race. And, and I'm excited to see how that all plays out. You know, shaking things up. The more we shake things up, the more we get away from old guard ideals. And that's not to dismiss the, the role that the old guard plays in this process, but to, to bolster that and add additional voices and perspectives and lived experience, <clears throat> I think that's absolutely critical. So that's basically what Omar brings to the table. And it's, this is a wonderful conversation. I hope you enjoy it here on B-Town. Remember, folks, you can find the Bartholomew Town podcast. Well, you obviously found it because you're listening to it, but maybe you're listening to it in someone's car or whatever. We're on Spotify, we're on Apple Podcasts, we're on TuneIn, we're on Amazon Alexa, we're on Google Podcasts, of course, ripodcast.com, and more coming soon. How's that for a tease? We'll have that for you not too long from now. But for today, my conversation with Omar Ba, the first Democrat to enter into the Congressional District 2 race, right here on B-Town. All right, so we're coming out of a weekend that was... It was weird, you know. It was it was almost too much. Let's be honest about it. The it, it, and it and it's sort of the side of politics that people don't like when you get a sense that a one of the two major political parties is kind of handpicking who they want to run, or kind of like, oh well, you know, it, it's up to a candidate of prominence, quote unquote, to decide whether or not they they want to take a stab at a certain 
uh, race or if they prefer a different one. It's like it's this political class inside baseball environment that has been playing itself out. And that's with respect mostly to Treasurer Magaziner and Helena Folks, who is the former CVS executive that is each of them running for governor to a far lesser extent, Secretary Gorbea. And we've also heard a myriad of other names being tossed around for the open congressional seat. I know Ed Pacheco is going to be announcing and will have announced by the time this podcast airs. But I was so excited, fascinated, enthusiastic about the notion of your announcement being the first Democrat to say, hey, wait a second, I want to do this. And you represent so many different things uh, that when I think about this this race, the things that I think are the priority, obviously responsiveness to to the broad constituency, but this is a chance to shake things up in Rhode Island. Boy, do we need that. We need to rethink what we're doing here in so many ways. And you bring a perspective and an experience and an organizational and institutional knowledge that is unique. So welcome to the show. I guess explain to us why you wanted to get into the Congressional District 2 race and, and kind of where you are now in sort of rolling out a campaign. Well, well great. Uh, thanks, Bill. I'm, I'm really grateful for coming in. Uh, I think, yeah, you're right. It was a roller coaster of a weekend. You know, um, a lot of things are happening, and I'm sure a lot of new things will happen. We're hearing a lot of announcements. But I, just to start with, why I'm running, um, the, if you continue to do the same thing over and over, then we are not ready for change. And I think change here will be embracing diversity, to embrace somebody to represent a diverse voice, the diverse voices of Rhode Island, people from different backgrounds, different economic backgrounds. I go to Broad Street and Elmwood every day of my life. This is the constituency I come from. People who are struggling with rent relief, homelessness, extreme levels of mental illness and addiction. You see uh, the lineup of homeless people uh, panhandling in the streets, and we feel helpless. I think the federal government can help with the um, with the local and state governments to address this. But if you don't know or you don't see this every day, you do not experience these challenges, the extreme levels of mental illness and trauma and uh, women with a um, single woman with so many mouths to feed. Uh, they cannot afford childcare. Uh, issues of language access, uh, problems facing our, our, our communities. I think these are the things that I live in every day. And I, those are the things, that's the diverse perspective I want to bring in. We cannot just have the same kind of people, the same um, uh, kind of uh, category of people. And I'm here talking about white, all white men in the same group. It's literally like an exclusive club. I'm asking, let me in. Letting me in means letting the very people we profess to serve into this exclusive club so that they can bring in that uh, alternative voice uh, and on the grounds of Congress. Yeah. And when you think about Congress, a, a congressional seat, the representation that is inherent in that office, obviously, I mean, that's the point of it at, on a fundamental level. Understanding the nuances of not only the symptoms or even the root causes of problems, because I think everybody who's in, in, in our congressional delegation would admit and agree that systemic racism is real, classism is real. There's been a tremendous amount of neglect in certain parts of our state, certain communities. We, these are all things that they're, they're obvious truths. And anybody who's not um, 
an agreement with that is either delusional or has an agenda. But the lived experience, either through your own story or through your day-to-day contacts and interactions with people on the ground in an apolitical context, not in the sense of, hey, I'm your congressperson. Let me take a walk down Broad Street three times a year so I can get a flavor of what's going on. That's the difference. That's the void in our representation that you seem to fill and, and would possibly be able to fill if elected to Congress. What's your story for those for the people that don't know who Omar Ba Omar Ba is? Tell us your story. Well, uh, as I always say, my story is the story of resilience and welcoming nature of the American public. Uh, I grew up in the north in the northern part of Gambia, the poorest part of that country. And the Gambia, for those who don't know, is on the west coast of Africa. By the way, is the smallest country on the continent of Africa. Now I'm living in the smallest state. Uh, you can <laughs> assume I love I love small small places. Yeah. But um, I grew up in that village. I, I, I became so much attached to in, uh, addressing issues of domestic violence and poverty because my mother was extremely uh, suffering. She sub- so subjected to domestic violence, and I wanted her to get out of that. So that made me want to be an advocate. Uh, issues of human rights matter to me a lot because it was an extremely poor place. A lot of people in my village did not go to school, did not have access to education. They were forced into marriages, especially for girls. I walked for miles barefooted to go to school in a society where many did not see any value in education, not not to talk about doing it. Then eventually when I grew up, I became a journalist. And the reason why I wanted to be a voice, I wanted to to write about issues that affected people. I wanted people to have a voice and empower them. That ran me into a lot of trouble because there was a dictatorship in the Gambia. And uh, I was arrested and tortured at the military barracks for investigating issues that the dictator did not want. And eventually in 2006, I was uh, declared a wanted man for investigating uh, stories that affected the dictator and his government. And uh, luckily, I was uh, escaped, went to Senegal, then Ghana. And uh, being the great nation we are, out of all the countries in the world, the American embassy reached out and supported me, helped me through the whole process. And I was uh, eventually accepted and evacuated to the U.S. as a refugee. I only knew the name Rhode Island one day before my arrival in 2007. I came here knew nobody. I started from the bottom, from scratch, and in the Elmwood area, no family, no friend. I met amazing Rhode Islanders, Americans who welcomed me, gave me home and hope and opportunities when I did not, when I was seriously distressed and, and challenged and, and, and struggling to, to, to understand my new world. And not knowing, lo and behold, this was my new home. And a home it became. Uh, I, I was supported to, 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 to reunite with my family, start a, fam- start a family. I have two boys that were born here. They're going to school, 10 and 11. My wife joined me through the help of U- U.S. Senator Jack Reed. And she came in 2009. I bought a home. I went to school, lots of school. I got a bachelor's degree, two master's degrees and a PhD. That all through the support of the Americans. And I think it is time to give back, but also to say thank you, but to inspire the people who go through the challenges and the journeys that I go through, to tell somebody living in Boroughville out there in a section eight housing and tell them, 
look, your child can do better if a, a kid from rural Gambia can come and get that education and establish a center and serve thousands of people, your child can do it. You tell a refugee or an immigrant or a person of color that they can try, they can attempt and they can make a difference and they can have a voice and they can participate in civic duties that make a difference in their own lives. And there cannot be a better person to advocate for and talk about the issues that affect the common person in the streets in our neighborhoods every day, from slum and blight to crime and uh, public safety and homelessness and addiction, than the person who lived through this. And that is exactly why I'm running. Your story is, I mean, I know your story because w- w- there was a Rhode Island PBS Weekly piece that you know, my colleagues worked on and and. I already knew who you were and I knew I basically have known this story, <laughs> but to hear it and then to hear it in the context of running for office, you know, we're in a moment now where it, identity politics, you know, <laughs> uh, things like this are a lot of it gets into tokenism, you know, let's be honest about it. And, and, but, but that the root of the issue beyond your spirituality, beyond the color of your skin, beyond, you know, anything of that, at that surface level, even though obviously those are not surface level things, but perceived surface level things is the experience you've gone through and how that translates into what you can do to represent people in this state. And I'll say it again. We need to shake that up so much. And that's, it's why I wanted to get involved in this at a certain level in this world. And, and to a greater extent, it's why regardless of the outcome, you being in this race changes the dynamics of the race. What have you heard from the democratic party as an institution? If anything, have you heard from Senator Reed? What about other candidates that, um, that may have thought about getting in? What, what, what are you getting from the political class, so to speak, here in the state? Well, well, I'm glad. I mean, there is some sort of an establishment here. Um, folks yeah. like me, as you said, I mean, coming in changes the dynamics. I'm, I'm the kind that do not uh, believe in tokenism or to be uh, decided for because there's an established uh, democratic party. I, I'm a Democrat. I respect the leadership of the party and I'm looking forward to their support and acknowledgement and probably even understanding that I, I'm, I'm the best bet and representation and rejuvenation of the spirit of the democratic party. However, I'm in with the notion of why not? I mean, we are here uh, have an opportunity to send a statement. And I think that statement, that the opportunity to send that statement is why I'm saying, why not? I mean, I'm not, I did not hesitate when I, when the opportunity came for me to announce that I want to run. I did not hesitate because the question was, why not? Because it cannot just be the same thing over and over, the same lineup of politicians, current politicians coming in over and over. There are certain issues I wish you see every day there are issues of domestic violence in my community that we address, that we work with, trying to keep families together, trying to save women who are experiencing this. Youth, young people who would have easily been in gangs that we are mentoring, amazing kids that became leaders in this community. So my question would be, if you really care about all these people, come join me. Let's work together. They shouldn't. That's why I'm. I know there's identity politics, Republicans, Democrats, progressive within Democratic Party, but I am not really trying to align myself. I'm a Democrat, very center. I will follow, pursue, and work with issues that matter. 
to the highest level and I will do it with passion because the people are the ones that I, I care about. And uh, I think as going back to your question quickly, whether people have reached out or whether I've heard from the congressional leaders, I have not, but I have no doubt they will support. Um, I think this is really going to be great. I don't want to feel uh, entitled because a lot of people are running. I think now they're taking their time, but I'm pretty uh, uh, confident they will support this effort and and, and help me through. Um, somebody has reached out. I cannot mention their name yet. Uh, one of the people uh, hoping to run um, and uh, they reached out. We had a conversation and he said he just hopes a Democrat wins. He left the field open. I think he's still going to run, but we hope we agreed to uh, connect again in t- in two weeks and see what happens. But I'm hoping he will endorse me. Very interesting. So that that hasn't happened yet, but it's something that that could happen because I've seen reports that someone said that they decided not to run and that they were going to support you. Is that happened or is that not true? Not not true. Um, I think um, I think people are excited. I mean, somebody reached out and they said, I mean, as anonymous, but I mean, they are thinking of running and they want a Democrat to win. And yeah. we should we should touch base in two weeks and and continue the conversation about what what to be done. Let's talk about the district. It's weird because obviously in the the post Cicilline era there was a, a realignment, so to speak. It is a little hard to understand. Um, even I I don't even necessarily remember sometimes which district I'm in here in Elmwood. <laughs> Are you in Congress? Do you live in Congressional District Two? And you know, th- this is a district that is, it, it, it's not fair to say it's conservative leaning in any way, shape or form, but Congressman Langevin has had significantly conservative positions on a lot of critical issues. The district has shown much greater support for a Donald Trump, for example, than, uh, than certainly con- Congressional District 1. You've got a-, a sense that unless he goes for treasurer or stays in private practice, Alan Fung is going to jump into this thing. And Warwick Cranston has been really the driving force for a lot of um, the, 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 the levers of power in Congressional District 2. You've also got the factor of rural Western Rhode Island, where some of the Jessica De La Cruz's of the state will try to play well. Do you think your message on a practical level uh, either on a human or on a on on a on just a, a political level translates to congressional district two, and that by and large the district as a whole will feel that your story and your position uh, is is such that it can be a, a strong pipeline for what they need in Washington and out of Washington. Yeah, absolutely. So just to begin with your your question of where I live. Yeah, I've yeah lived what a from, rambling question. Sorry about that. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've lived from Congressional District 2 for over 10 years. Yeah. And in this January, I bought a house around, uh, that was close in December. I moved uh, around uh, Charles Street, which is just around oh. the border between the two Congressional Districts. But my lease on Mount Pleasant is still there. So yeah. I, I technically still live in both places because I still have a list there and my family members, some of my family members live there, live yep. in that apartment. So I'm, I'm in, in both places. And uh, to come back to the constituency, I think um, you, people underestimate the power of what American people can do. I mean, we've seen Barack Obama come in here. He did not have a legacy name. He was running against uh, people with great uh, family legacies, you know, the yep. Clintons and others. And then... Um, but the a lot of it is not is not the the um the 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 issues 
the conservative uh, points, it is a matter of identity and sense of belonging. Americans see somebody like me, they know me, they, they've seen my story, they've seen what I do. That is, this is the identity that Americans want to be associated with. And you will be amazed how uh, the, the reception I've been receiving since the weekend and what people are about to do. Because they, it is really more about identity and promoting the issue of diversity and what Americans stand for. And that is the message I'm sending out there to every village or every town in this uh, district. Yeah, that's that, that's that's fascinating that that's the driving force because it's something that arguably hasn't been the driving force of a congressional or Senate race here in Rhode Island in my, my lifetime, frankly. And and it's something that we need and something you see in other places. I mean, having lived in New York for a decade, I mean, that's part of the experience there in New York City and Brooklyn. I mean, you know, it's a totally different beast, but it doesn't have to be um, that there's positions that people on the left have criticized. Congressman Langevin on one of them was his stance on abortion, which he's changed in the last few years or last year, actually. But I think the one I hear the most often is his position on military funding. And it's fascinating, your experience living in a dictatorship, having been tortured for what we would identify as First Amendment experiences, and then understanding the American exceptionalism that comes with the the, the protections thereof. You know, the military industrial complex, I mean, like we're, we're not going to have, you know, Darth Vader's not going to walk out of the, the room right now. And, you know, we're not getting into, it's it's not so much about the specifics of that. You know, this is generally speaking, are you comfortable with um, the, the, the positions that the congressman has taken on on military? And then when you talk about BRAC and the allocation of funds to Rhode Island, a critical source of our revenue uh, and even arguably part of the blue economy is our military uh, industrial complex industries here. Is that something that you're you're comfortable with supporting or do you think there needs to be kind of a revisit there? Um, and are you okay with some people on the left disagreeing with you on that position, but by and large buying into your, your general worldview? Well, you know, I mean, uh, I'm, I, I can easily make mistakes with my pronouncements in politics because I'm not making any pronouncements based on... Um, political expediency or carefulness, I'll say it as it is. The point is, I am fully in support of our military and I believe they should be fully funded because living under dictatorship and currently receiving hundreds of Afghans coming to my center where that I'm serving, I know the importance of uh, protecting and fully funding our military because they're in the line of danger to protect our nation. However, I think there should be oversight, extreme level of oversight over the industrial complex, people who are getting the contracts and what they're doing with our money, and to ensure that there is a balance between the two. I think that's where the, the fine line is. Uh, Congressman Langevin is somebody that inspires me, despite the challenges. Of course, there might have been mistakes or otherwise. Clear case of example, let's talk about the refugee immigrant population uh, legislations. A couple of years ago, he voted against uh, a, a law that promoted uh, refugee resettlement. But yeah. later he changed his mind and came. Personally, we had a conversation. He, he had a change of heart to support uh, the process. So it's, it's there's nothing pedantic and, and perfect about politics. I think the genuineness and the, the issue of uh, caring about the people you see in your community is, is what matters. I, I'm really not afraid of making mistakes. I just want to make an effort and try and represent the people that we serve. For, 
uh, in, in during the pandemic, we had a lot of problems. You know, we had press conferences every day. You know, professionals, you know, and the leaders of our state having press conferences every day, saying, "Oh, go to this, call this number. You have COVID tests." People in my community, and when I say in my community, I've been mean poor people, working class people, not only immigrants and refugees, could not access the testing sites. They yes. they would call a number. You'll spend an hour on a phone number. That our state leaders were on press conferences every day providing that number. They couldn't access it. They couldn't have the vaccine. They couldn't know where, they didn't know where to go. There were every efforts. So these are the kinds of challenges that people go through every day. Months later, when the people who are educated and who can access those things are done, that is when the people in the communities of color or people in poor communities can access it. Is that how public health is supposed to work, especially during a pandemic? I bet a lot of our leaders don't know these things, but me who lives in the community, who lives through it, I know this, I live it. And I think that is why we need that kind of voice in Congress, because there are certain nuances. The person that lives it must be there. Absolutely. Absolutely. The lack of testing uh, in, in certain communities and more importantly, or particularly translation, transportation, brick and mortar sites. This was an outrageous breakdown in our state happening before our eyes on a daily basis in certain zip codes with certain people. There was a classist rollout of testing. There was a classist rollout of the vaccination process. And it even in in many, to many extents, it continues today and it's outrageous and it is not going to be corrected until people who have lived that experience are in positions of influence, whether inside or the political sphere directly or, or in that orbit. Um, And, and the, that's just one nuanced example that, and by the way, it's not exclusively in the urban core in, in your district that you're running for. Certainly you mentioned Burrowville. You can certainly draw lines where, in distance learning, Foster Gloucester. I mean, there were places that didn't have internet when distance learning began. So there, there is a classist element to the state that most people, like you say, they probably just don't realize it because they don't know any better. You know, exactly. if you come from uber wealth, um, you know, you can you can make all the speeches you like. You can donate to whoever you like. Again, you can do the the, the perfunctory walk down Broad Street a couple of times a year and do the high fives and everything. It's the lived experience. So bringing that to the table is going to elevate this race to a, sub, a place of substance that is likely impossible to get to without you. Um, my last question, and I, I appreciate your time because I know we just went over a little bit from what we discussed, but one quick one, campaign infrastructure. You feel good about that? You can raise money. You can get out there. This is winnable in your mind. I think this is absolutely winnable. I'm asking for the support of everybody, especially Democratic leadership and those trying to run from the Democratic Party, please come and support me. This is uh, the voice of conscience that we can all come to a consensus on and and make it happen. Um, As I said, I'm not a politician. I don't have that experience. I have a lot of people reaching out to volunteer, to help. It's been really an amazing uh, show of support, outpouring show of support. So we're building the infrastructure, and then eventually we'll start announcing uh, all the all the processes and the material and, and and where we stand on the issues. Omar Ba running for Congress in Congressional District Two here in Rhode Island, and uh, hey, it's underway. It's going to be an interesting part of our already exciting, if you're into politics, year here in Rhode Island, and 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 I look forward to seeing where your campaign goes because I really do believe that it elevates the conversation a great deal. Great. Thank you so much, Bill. Rhode Island's podcast of record, B-Town. 
At HealthSource RI for Employers, we provide access to health insurance to more than 1,100 local businesses and nonprofits, and 96% of them renew through us every year. Maybe it's our choice of 19 different health plans, our 10 years of customizing solutions, or our one local team of dedicated experts helping employers find quality health insurance. See how our numbers stack up for you. Learn more at healthsourceri.com slash employers.